It is surprisingly easy to create monsters that will destroy us when we dedicate our resources to ignoring creation as it is and try to redesign reality to suit our own desires. In the end of Zechariah 11, there is a shepherd coming, and not just any shepherd, but a monstrous shepherd, and it comes to destroy and viciously consume both innocent sheep and wicked rulers alike. The chapter ultimately climaxes with the violent actions costing an eye and an arm to the idle shepherd, solidifying the image of a wrathful monster. Oftentimes, when we find shepherds in prophecies, we associate them with Christ Jesus, but this is something different. Jesus comes to bind up the brokenhearted while this monster comes to consume. Zechariah 11 is a poetic message of power and dangerous wrath brought about by wicked leaders. And we will discuss Zechariah 11 and some of the themes that are found in Mary Shelley's story, Frankenstein, because there is some commonality between them. In both cases, you see people creating something in contrary to the design of creation, and it ultimately ends up snapping back at them, leaving them in a place of desolation and destruction. And after discussing all of this, we'll finish the message by giving an antidote to monstrous creations from wickedness. So, welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And in this sermon, I, Pastor J. Dylan Brockter, will be discussing how Frankenstein's monster relates to the Bible. So, Zechariah 11 is an interesting thing because we find the prophet bringing about another prophetic message. However, things are a bit different this time because the prophet is now called to act as if he is a shepherd. He is stepping into a new role, a bit of a different persona. And he is not just any shepherd. He is the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. This chapter presents a wildly different format and wildly different tone than what we are typically used to. And the prophet puts on the shepherd role in order to rebuke the tyranny of worldly leaders. The prophet is taking on this role of the shepherd who is employed by the owners of sheep. And it's important to note that this prophetic shepherd is not the only shepherd in the story. Of course, there will be the ultimate climax with the idle shepherd, but there are also the various shepherds throughout the world. In fact, the number of shepherds in this and the number of sheep merchants and sheep owners seems to be without number. But all the same, let us get into this and see what beautiful poetry we can find in this interesting message. So we're going to start in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 1. And today I'll be reading from the King James Version, as it brings beautiful poetic language to discuss this rather interesting set of circumstances. So Zechariah 11, 1 reads as follows. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. Howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Thus saith the Lord my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. For they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the men every one into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. Now we've been reading from the King James Version, and I want us to take a break from this to understand some of the things going on here. What we find poetically outlined for us is the unrestrained doom for those who have been exploiting the sheep of the earth without any regard to Almighty God. Naturally, this is not just about people who are out with 
their livestock or other farm animals, but this is talking about people who have been given responsibility, they've been put in charge of their fellow man, and they have chose to be people exploiting and to have no regard for Almighty God. There is a tendency that when people have power and influence, they seem to think that, well, they have all the power and influence. They forget that there is something greater than themselves. And we're going to pick up in verse 7 here in a moment, and we're going to swap over to the NRSV. But again, I just want to reiterate this moment that while we do find the prophet stepping into the role of the shepherd, there's a lot of shepherds in this. There are the, the complicit shepherds of the world who don't really care for the livestock. They're just employees being paid. There are people who are the owners of the sheep, and they think they can do whatever they want. And of course, this is all referencing the tyrants of the world who, well, they're tyrants of the world, and they bring tyranny to all under them. So let's pick up in verse 7. So, on behalf of the sheep merchants, I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. I took two staffs, one named Favor and one named Unity, and I tended to the sheep. In one month I disposed of three shepherds, for I had become impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Let those that are left devour the flesh of one another. And so I took my staff of favor and broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. And so it was annulled on that day. And the sheep merchants, who were watching me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed out my wages, thirty shekels of silver. And then the Lord said to me, Throw it in the treasury, this lordly price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff, unity, annulling the family ties between Judah and Israel. While this prophetic message is one where the prophet is clearly posing as a shepherd, the prophet is ultimately a messenger of God. He is ultimately a tool of God himself. And when the sheep merchants, the owners, and even the other shepherds, they have no regard for this particular prophetic shepherd, they're ultimately disregarding God. The owners, they do not realize it, but they think that there is one below them that is actually above them. They think that God is below them. And this is an arrogant mistake, which is ultimately their destruction. God tells the people that he has been protecting them from the consequences of their own actions. And now God is saying, I'm breaking that staff of favor. And your own wickedness, it will snap back at you, bringing a destruction which you could possibly never imagine. And as the staves of favor and unity both break, the wicked are no longer protected from the consequences of their own actions. And as we pick up in the next few verses, you will see how this turns back on them with a monster that is not unlike Mary Shelley's monster in the story of Frankenstein. So let's get back to Zechariah 11, and we're going to pick up in verse 15, and now we're going to return to the King James Version because, again, beautiful language here. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, for, lo, I will raise up a shepherd out of the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat, and tear their claws into pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock! The sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. 
And thus, we conclude Zechariah chapter 11. As you might find in a story like that of Frankenstein, it ends with a monster living out there, and it's just out with a big cliffhanger. There's a question wondering, what is next? Where's the hope in all of this? What is next? Because what we find in the end is there is a shepherd, and you get this real primal, primitive sense of a monster. It rises up out of the ground. It is, is coming out to deal with those who have caused wickedness in the world. And again, it is so interesting and it's so poetic that the fact that these people who own sheep, they've been exploiting sheep, they've been not caring about anything which is of God, and ultimately it is a monstrous shepherd rising up out of the ground which will come and destroy them. And again, you get the language of idolatry there, and for the idle shepherd, he comes chopping off an arm and in, without an eye, and you get this wonderful image of a monster. Just go ahead and picture that in your, your mind, the, the eye gouged out, the arm chopped off. This would be a, a wonderful candidate for Bible stories that are investigated as X-Files if this were not a prophecy. But considering that it's a prophecy, it doesn't necessarily make the cut for that. But it's interesting nonetheless because you do get this very, very grotesque, this gruesome monster there for you to envision. And this one-eyed, one-armed monster that is out there, it is the product of of the ambition of these people who turned away from God. Having ambition in and of itself is not bad, but when people use their ambition to think that they are better than God, they, they think that God is below them, that is where their arrogance leads to their destruction. So I want us to compare Zechariah 11 to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Because Dr. Frankenstein himself has a bit of a God complex. He thinks that he has the ability to redefine both life and death. We see the wicked rulers there in Zechariah, they themselves, they think that they get to redefine the laws of creation. They think that they are the ones who have some claim to the order of the universe, just like Dr. Frankenstein, he thinks he has some claim to the rules of life and death. And both the wicked rulers in Zechariah and Dr. Frankenstein, they are ultimately destroyed by the products of their own ambition and worldview. And oftentimes we see prophecies in Zechariah and other books, and we relate the shepherds in these prophecies to Christ. However, the shepherd in the end of Zechariah 11 is something different. It is much more akin to Dr. Frankenstein's monster than it is the ministry of Jesus, because it is a monster brought about by the ambition of wicked people, and it ultimately consumes them in the same manner and under the same terms that they would consume others. The end of Dr. Frankenstein is not actually Dr. Frankenstein's death. Instead, it's something which is a bit worse than death. The end of him is that he's alone. He's out searching for the monster as it vanishes up into the Arctic. It's a place of cold isolation. Dr. Frankenstein, throughout his life, he's a guy with bad social relationships. He, he struggles. He doesn't really have friends like he wants to. He has a lot of issues, and he wants to create a monster that will somehow be able to fix those issues. And in the end, he finds that he is lost, alone, without any semblance of humanity around him. He is left nowhere but an isolated place that is a cold, empty void of ice. His fate is an exaggerated version of the suffering that he was trying to avoid all along. And the solitude really is particularly interesting considering all the circumstances of his life. The reason why he wants to redefine life and death is because he is a lonely and isolated man. He has terrible social skills, and he thinks that if he can exploit scientific knowledge, he can redefine what it means to have a friend. He can redefine what it means to have power over life and death. He wants to exploit the laws, the very physics of the universe. He wants to, to be the one that is ambitious enough to think that he can rewrite them and edit them to his own desire to take away the own suffering in his life. 
Frankenstein's lack of friends is one of his primary motivators in doing all of his work in creating a monster, and he really does want to rewrite the fundamentals of creation. Ultimately, his utter disregard for the fundamentals of creation result in creation snapping back at him and an exaggerated suffering that he tried to avoid all along. Now, this is the logical conclusion of trying to disregard creation. It is the logical conclusion of trying to disregard the purpose that God has for everything around us and even ourselves. As we find in Zechariah 11, disregarding God does not always look like someone openly coming out and saying, we want to disregard and reject God. Oftentimes, people instead have something else that they want to reject. They may even in their own life pretend as if God is not real. They may not even discuss God at all. But when they look to things which are clearly of God, such as this prophetic shepherd, the one who is who is coming along with his prophetic message, they want to reject the prophetic shepherd, which by proxy they are rejecting God because, again, the prophet he is not bringing his own will, but he is instead carrying out the will and the message that God has given to him. It is very, very interesting how this happens because for the wicked sheep owners and the other wicked people there within Zechariah 11, the rulers, these are people who they're rejecting the products of God and therefore they're saying we just don't concede that any of it's real. We're just thinking that we have this place in the universe where we get to make all the shots. We get to make those calls. But ultimately, they create a monster that comes back to consume them. It's so interesting because Zechariah 11, God says, you know, I had this favor. I was doing something to protect you from the consequences of your own actions, but you've risen to the level of depravity where I'm snapping that rod and I'm just going to let the monsters you create come back and with their gruesome look with the whole image of the one arm, the one eye, they're going to come back and destroy you. And that is the end of the chapter. And it teaches us that monsters are created when people try to Christ creation. They want to twist it into their own version of reality. This is the fundamental issue in both Zechariah 11 and the story of Frankenstein. Not only do we create monsters when we reject the fundamental truths of God creation, but we specifically create monsters that will destroy us in a poetic fashion. For the wicked owners in Zechariah 11, they are destroyed by a product of their own ambition. God breaks the rod of his favor, and it comes back to destroy them. The creation does. It snaps back. The shepherd rises up, and it comes and consumes them the way they would consume others. Again, different translations will translate the very end of Zechariah 11 differently, but you get this image of, of consuming down to the claws, the hooves, a very primal, brutal thing. It's a, a very gory image. But again, just as Dr. Frankenstein, as he's trying to, to fix his issues with solitude and he wants to have a, a new redefined connection with humanity, he finds himself all alone without any sign of humanity around him, isolated and on a cold place of ice. It is interesting how when we fight creation and when we fight reality, it comes back at us in the same way that we tried to attack it. So we've diagnosed a problem, this problem of creating monsters. But now we have the difficult path of trying to find a prescription that will keep us from doing this. And as I kind of hinted at earlier, being arrogant is a huge problem that comes to this, these sort of situations. It, it really does bring a, a level of depravity to people. And if we want to ensure that we are not creating monsters, there's a few things that we really need to do. First and foremost, we must be honest about creation. And we must recognize that there are matters larger than ourselves. And of course, we must choose not to be arrogant. And we really do have to be honest about creation and reality. 
Recently, I was given the privilege of, of doing an interview with a man who was recovering from addiction. And one of the tools that was given to people in his position was they must be honest in prayer. Be honest to God. Be honest about your questions to God. Be honest about your relationship with God. And also be honest with your fellow man. State the problems that are going on in your life and be open about them. Do not hide anything. Do not pretend they are not there. But be completely honest in prayer and be completely honest in your relationships. In doing that, you're able to deal with things head on. And honesty about creation includes recognizing that you did not create the universe. God is the one who spoke creation into existence. And there is an element of confession that is necessary to preventing ourselves from constructing monsters. In the Christian world, we really like Psalms 23. And for a good reason. But there is a problem that many people want to reserve Psalm 23 to be something which is read as, as one passes from this life. But Psalms 23 is something which is instrumental in the human walk all the way from birth to those moments where we pass from this life. Because Psalms 23, it opens up with this moment saying that God comes and he doesn't just supply your, your needs, but also your wants. There's something about the, the primal, the basic hierarchy of needs that we have early on all the way towards the end. But there's an interesting part of Psalm 23, and that is, of course, the, the pivotal moment in the darkest valley or the shadow of the valley of death. Now, what is interesting about Psalm 23 is it doesn't give us any guarantee that you will actually leave that valley. Though, there are times where people, they find themselves in terrible sufferings. They come out alive and they go on to live other moments in life. There are times where people find themselves in that darkest valley and they do pass. But what Psalms 23 does guarantee for us is that we will have the rod and the staff of God there with us in that darkest valley. But you see, in order for us to have the rod and staff of God, which again, it's a tool for consolation. It's a tool for defending ourselves against the things in the world. It's a tool for guiding us so that we can come out of that valley, which again, not times there are times when people don't. But if we want those tools of God, we must confess that we're in that darkest valley and we must be willing to receive those tools from God. We have to have an honest relationship with God and an honest covenant with God if we want to have the benefits and the consequences of an honest relationship and honest covenant with God. And if we are to, to prevent ourselves from creating monsters, we must be honest about creation. Oftentimes in our world, people are taught to reject the darkest valley itself, to tell the world that it's the world's problem, that there are even darkest valleys to begin with, that you have no responsibility for being in there, that you should just scream at the world and, and tell the world that it's wrong and everybody else is at fault for even pretending that the darkest valley is actually around you. But realistically, this only exaggerates the suffering and allows monsters to come and consume. If we want to be able to defeat things of wickedness, we must be honest about them and realize that suffering is intrinsic to life. Nowhere in Scripture do we get a promise that we will be eradicated from suffering while we walk our walk with Christ. Instead, we are told that while suffering may come, God will give us the tools where we can overcome such. And even if we fall while in the middle of such dark valleys, there is a promise beyond this world, and there is an eternal justice which comes for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as we go back to, to Dr. Frankenstein, we see that Frankenstein, he himself, he is not honest about reality, but instead he wants to prey on the laws and the fundamentals of creation. And this is because he thinks that they belong to him. And just as earlier, I had mentioned the concept of arrogance. This is a huge problem. There are people who are arrogant and they think that nothing in the world is larger than themselves. They think that there could never be someone with more authority than them. They would think that the laws of the universe, perhaps they are not fixed. Perhaps they are like a toy which I can come and manipulate as my will sees fit. Dr. Frankenstein, he thinks that science is his toy. 
that he can manipulate it as he sees fit and redefine the fundamentals of the cosmos. The sheep owners and the sheep merchants and even the complicit shepherds in Zechariah 11, they too, they see that there is nothing larger than them. That this prophetic shepherd, he can be disregarded. Maybe you pay him 30 shekels, maybe you don't. Maybe you spend some time thinking about it, maybe you don't. Pay him 30 shekels and move on with your life because he's not important. He is beneath you. Just as Dr. Frankenstein considers the laws of science beneath him, he can redefine them as he sees fit. There are these many people in our world that are, well, arrogant. They think that they can just rewrite and re-edit the world around them as they see fit, and somehow that will make the suffering go away. Unfortunately, this is not true. It, it isn't, and it breaks my heart whenever people are trapped in this sort of faulty logic. We must recognize that there are martyrs larger than ourselves. One of the frequently hurled insults of the modern pagans is that God is just a mere fictional invention of a few conspirators. That there were some people who got together and they decided to have this God that they could control others with and that it was something less than humanity, just a mere product and invention. However, in truth, we know that God actually is almighty and all of his creation is greater than any one individual. Moreover, God did give us dominion over the earth, but that doesn't mean we get to rewrite the fundamentals of the universe. Because the God who spoke creation into existence, he begins by bringing light. He divides the waters above and the waters below. This is the God who speaks both heaven and earth into existence. And while we do have dominion on this earth, that doesn't mean that we have dominion over the universe and the laws of physics and the very light which comes from God itself. These things, they even predate humanity and there are something which are larger than ourselves. And many people in our world, they are quite arrogant, thinking that they can redefine everything around them. And oftentimes people who are of this arrogance, they are convicted by moral conviction and they think they're actually doing good. Many people create monsters because they look around them and they say, oh, they're, they're suffering in the world. This person appears to be in a darkest valley. Well, it must be the valley's fault. And even if they don't understand why, they don't have evidence, they don't have an intellectually sound argument about why the valley might be evil, they create a monster to go and destroy it. But they focus on the person that they have there in the middle, and even if they can't articulate or understand the suffering that's going on with the person there, and they can't come with a meaningful moral code that brings the truth of God there and understands how we properly deal with suffering, they create a monster as if that will fix the problem. There are many people in our world who are very good at identifying suffering, and they think that it's all a product of oppression and privilege, as if that is what is the law of the universe. In the end, they are ultimately just creating monsters. They're embodying the same principles which they claim that they are against. And if we want to be humble about our position in creation and not create these monsters, we must recognize really where we're at. There are things which are out there which are larger than we, and even we ourselves are more complicated than we are self-aware. Humility, as opposed to arrogance, really is an interesting thing. Because humility isn't something which disables us from action. It's not something which keeps us locked away in a room where we don't engage the world. But instead, humility is something which gives us a godly amount of ambition to proceed in the world and move in an adventurous way. Humility is not a thorn in our side preventing us from action, but instead it is something which gives us insight into where we are in creation. God gave us dominion over the earth, but God ultimately has dominion over us. And as God has dominion over us, God also has dominion over the earth. And therefore, there is a proper place. Humility recognizes the place that we have. And it doesn't mean that we get to rewrite the laws of physics. We don't get to rewrite the laws of creation. And in the end, 
we must recognize that God's purpose is something which gives us responsibility to carry out in the world. And thus, as we conclude this message, I want to remind us that it is surprisingly easy to create monsters, even when we have good intentions. In fact, a lot of times when people have good intentions but they have a bad moral compass, or they have a misguided moral compass, or they have a moral compass that follows an idol instead of the one true God who spoke creation into existence, they go out with moral conviction and create monsters. That's the one thing which is interesting. The people who create monsters tend to be people who sincerely believe they're doing good. And these wicked monsters that they create, they come and they snap back at them, destroying and consuming everything in its pathway, and usually on the same terms that they were created. And if we want to stop this, we must be honest about creation, recognize there are things larger than ourselves, and choose not to be arrogant. And that's where we're going to end, ladies and gentlemen. I thank you so much for joining us. And again, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, you can reach out to me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. With that, God love you, and have a blessed day.